0: Ladies and gentlemen, we can all name countries that enjoy vast mineral wealth but that somehow have not succeeded in using that mineral wealth to eradicate rampant poverty and to generate uh, economic growth and prosperity. One of the reasons for this is that citizens, elected officials and even municipal and state governments often are not aware of how much revenue is being paid by companies extracting those minerals to their national governments. This fosters conditions where corruption and mismanagement are more likely to occur. Our speakers today will help us to understand the reasons for this and the role that Canada is playing in the fight for greater transparency and accountability in the mining industry. Our speakers today have between them decades of experience observing and commenting on governance in the extractive sector. Claire Woodside, uh, please come on up. Claire is the director of Publish What You Pay Canada and a board member of Transparency International Canada. Claire is the author of Lifting the Veil, Exploring the Transparency of Canadian Companies and she has over 10 years experience working on and researching issues related to the extractive sector and responsible resource governance. Uh, Next on stage is Mr. Pierre Graton. Pierre is President and CEO of the Mining Association of Canada. He also serves as first Vice President of the Inter-American Mining Society and Vice President of the Raw Materials Committee of the Business and Industry Advisory Committee to the OECD. Prior to his appointment as President and CEO of the Mining Association of Canada, Pierre served as president and CEO of the Mining Association of British Columbia. Pierre has been honored as a distinguished lecturer for the Canadian Institute of Mining, Metallurgy and Petroleum. Finally, Akash Maharaj is the professional leader, welcome Akash, of the Global Organization of Parliamentarians Against Corruption, otherwise known as GOPAC. GOPAC is an international alliance of democratically elected parliamentarians working together to combat corruption, strengthen good government, and uphold the rule of law. Akash has published, uh, has had articles published by newspapers in every populated continent. That's an extraordinary claim. (laughs) Well done. Uh, And appears regularly on TVO's The Agenda. He has been named one of Canada's 50 most well-known and respected personalities by Maclean's Magazine. Another incredible qualification. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome our panel.
1: Thank you very much, Andrea. Um, Before we begin, I'd like to uh, acknowledge, on behalf of um, my colleagues at GOPAC, as well as my fellow panelists, um, our gratitude for being invited to be here today. I think we are all conscious of the fact that, in many ways, the history of the Empire Club is the history of Canada, and that for almost as long as Canada has been a country, The Empire Club has been stewarding the national conversation and by doing so, helping to shape Canada's national identity and our national presence on the international stage. Um, As Andrea said, um, GOPAC's name certainly lacks brevity, but what it (laughs) lacks in brevity, it makes up for in clarity. Um, Our parliamentary alliance has members in almost every country of the world. We have national chapters in 51 legislatures across the planet. And our members hail from different cultures, speak different languages, profess different faiths, uh, pursue different political ideologies. Um, Come election time, they try to cut one another's political throats. And some of them have had uh, active combat experience against one another during their country's civil and international conflicts. However, the one thing that binds them all together is that they have agreed to come together under Gopak's umbrella to combat corruption. Driven, out, driven by the belief that in the context of, of the end of the Cold War, corruption has become the single greatest threat to the viability of democracies everywhere. That while democracy has won the argument, it still remains to deliver the goods for too many people across the world. And I promise you that I will not pelt you with a lot of um, statistics, but I will pelt you with three. And the first <laughs> is that um, by our estimates, every year, Political corruption kills about 140,000 children by depriving them of food, water, and medical care. And that is far from being the worst of its consequences. Um, But in our estimation, there are three areas where political corruption runs rampant and has the worst effects. The first is in large-scale public infrastructure, the second in defense procurement, and the third in resource extraction, which is what brings us here today. For all of us, especially as Canadians, we know that mining, um, oil, and gas can be a huge blessing. It can, bring massive, it can be a massive engine of job creation, especially in countries where having a job makes the difference between life and starvation. It can make the difference for countries between prosperity and failure, and it can be a primary funder of social justice and social development. Equally, however, it can be a curse when the wealth is bled away by, by bribery and political corruption where the funds are used to prop up um, despotism and brutal tyrannies, and where the extractive industry becomes a weapon of exploitation and oppression by both public and private actors. I think it will be no surprise to us as Canadians that the choice between those two pilots, between between whether resources are a blessing or a curse, is fundamentally a political choice, a choice made by governments, legislatures, private and public actors. But I think it may surprise many of us to know the extent to which those choices are choices made by Canadians and in Canada for the entire world. Uh, the other statistic I will pelt you with is that 60% of Canada's min- of the world's mining companies are incorporated in Canada. And in recent years, 75% of, um, of new mining finances have originated from Canada. As a result, the choices that Canadian governments Canadian- and Canadian actors make in the regulation and in the operation of the mining and oil and gas sectors are very much choices that shape the entire global marketplace. They are choices that affect not just ourselves, but people in every country, on every continent across the world. Um, Today, I'm very pleased to be here with Pierre and Claire to discuss Canada's role in the fight for transparency and the fight against corruption in the extractive industries and particularly in mining. and especially to look at one landmark Canadian choice which we are in the process of making as a country, and that is the reporting payments legislation which is now part of the the Budget Implementation Act. The legislation will require oil, gas, and mining companies to disclose all their payments um, to, uh, to governments at all levels. It will apply to all publicly traded and all larger private companies. And as a result of the concentration of mining companies in Canada, it will at a stroke affect the majority of mining companies on the planet. Mm -hmm. Um, This latest legislation is in many ways a landmark step uh, that has been brought about internationally by a coalition of legislators, international institutions, mining companies, resource extraction companies and civil society organizations, and in Canada it has been in in particular Um, precipitated by the work of the Prospectors and Developers Association, Revenue Watch, the Mining Association of Canada, and Publish What You Play Canada. And so with that, um, our conversation will be on what is this legislation, what does it mean for Canada, what does it mean for the world, and in a very real way, what kind of a world are Canadians in the process of creating through the choices that we have before us today? Um, the first question I'll ask is a fairly straightforward one, and that is to ask both Pierre and Claire what you believe to be the impact of this bill and how its pursuit of increased transparency will increase accountability of both public and private actors.
2: Who wants to go first? Do you want to go first?
3: Sure. Um, you know, I think from, from the perspective of Publish What You Pay, uh, which is a global coalition of over 800 civil society organizations in over 50 countries, uh, this legislation is critical to the fight against corruption, but also to improved accountability, which is an essential uh, part in the fight against corruption. Um, and I think you know, what we hear from our stakeholders and resource-rich, particularly developing countries, is that they don't have the information they need to have informed conversations uh, with, their, with their governments. And without that information, which needs to be available in a rigorous and timely way, they can't ask tough questions about where the money that their governments earn from uh, resource revenues goes. You know, And there have been too many instances where vast sums are paid to regional governments or federal governments in developing countries, and citizens on the ground don't see the benefits. And I think that's the kind of situation that they're trying to change at the heart of this. You know, Canadian companies have a huge global presence. Um, With 8,000 properties in over 100 countries, we regularly have questions from coalition members about Canadian companies in their country. Um, Because our coalition members are affected by Canadian companies. And they're interested in what they're saying in Canada. They're interested in who they are, what they're doing. And they're interested in what they're paying their governments. And I think that Canada's role in this is critical not only because of our international presence, but because we really have put ourselves out there as a global leader on extractives. And setting an example that um, a really strong transparency standard is part of global leadership is something that we've seen the Canadian mining sector come out on, and now it's something we see the Canadian government come out on. And I think it's critical to showing other countries you know, in jurisdictions that have yet to implement this legislation, that this is part of being a leader in the extractive sector?
2: I don't have anything to say now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I think the interest in the industry is, there's multiple reasons for doing this, but one of them is the obvious one that I think we all share, the extent to which and I, I think we shouldn't we shouldn't Overstate what this legislation will accomplish. It's an important step. It's not a silver bullet. It's not going to eradicate corruption. But it is a step towards helping uh, eradicate corruption. And the extent to which we can do that, all of uh, industry is served because it's in all of our interests to operate in places where the rules are clear and they're o- the rules are obeyed by everyone and that there's a level playing field. It's also an opportunity, I think, for the industry to show what it does do um, there's often questions made people question whether the industry our industry contributes and in what way does it contribute to social and economic development or in what way could we better contribute if those monies were used uh, in, in in better ways and by shining a light on those payments made uh, we have the opportunity to do that and, and we often um, you know you mentioned the resource curse earlier the resource curse is avoidable uh, if, the, if the, the benefits and the, the monies that flow from that development are used strategically and with the view to long-term community development. Uh, that doesn't happen if the monies flow to national governments where they then sort of disappear. Uh, so the extent to which this helps create a system where, uh, where the, the revenue flows and the benefits are able to Uh, contribute to social and economic community development where the mines are, uh, that's in our long-term interest as well. It helps make the case for mining.
1: Perhaps one of the unusual aspects for Canada, um, not unique though, is the relationship between resource extraction and relations with First Nations governments. I noted that in the legislation that's before Parliament now, um, although it requires reporting of payments to all all other levels of government, it does not include reporting of payments to Aboriginal, uh, Aboriginal Council governments. Is that something you would like to see in the long term?
2: I guess in the long term. The, we deliberately as a group left that piece out of our, our work and there were no recommendations in our report on that particular aspect, mostly because we felt very strongly that to do that we would need to take the appropriate amount of time to consult with, with Aboriginal Canadians and their different organisations. Given the time frame, we, we figured, you know, we'll deal with this first part and then we could look at that other uh, piece afterwards. So we've been similarly concerned that the federal government immediately included that in their proposal because we weren't convinced they were undertaking the right amount of consultation. And certainly we've heard from many ourselves, we've been approached by other many Aboriginal groups expressing concern about what is this, where is this coming from? What's it gonna require us? What's gonna be included? These you know, impact benefit agreements, their commercial arrangements, why is this, you know, why should there, th- this be uh, made public? All of those very legitimate questions. And also, like, what happens if this is disclosed? Will governments then use that information to claw back in other areas? I mean, very legitimate questions that they have. So we actually encourage the government to do what it's done, which is to take more time to consult, and so there is sort of a two-year phase in. Um, I have a feeling we'll still be talking about this though in two years and whether it's the right thing to do at this time.
3: Yeah. I mean, Publish What You Pay Canada, we don't have uh, member organizations that we draw from the First Nations communities. So we didn't feel like we represented that voice. And I think when we established the Resource Revenue Transparency Working Group, which looked more specifically at this issue, you know, with the Mining Association of Canada and the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, we realized that to look at that, we needed to have stakeholders at the table from Canada's First Nation and Inuit communities, and we didn't have those. Uh, So I think that that really made our decision. That said, uh, you know, I'm part of a transparency organization. I don't think I could sit here and say that transparency is going to, you know, convey negative you know there's going to be sort of a really negative impact from more disclosure. Um, you know we we do see huge benefits in other countries for for example municipal level disclosure you know and, and even in Canada, we know we're not immune to municipal level corruption um, so you know there, it will be interesting to see what this legislation sheds light on at different levels of government, particularly for example the municipal level where there's almost no data in Canada on what resource extraction companies pay at that level of, of government. Um, you know, so we did make the deliberate decision not to look at that issue. The government has included it in the bill with a two-year delay, um, and we supported the delay for further consultation because we, we know that's, that is critically important. Um, and we share concerns uh, you know, about, about how it's implemented.
2: And I would, I would just add, I think, by and large, you know, the, my board feels much the same way. In the end, this is a good place to get to. It's how we get there that also matters. The process is often as important or sometimes more important than, than the end. Um, and I think there's certainly a lot of conversations been going on for a long time in, in our sector around uh, impact benefit agreements, or they fall there's different names for them, but how because they're secret, you know, how do you know when you're a new project what you're negotiating with? Um, and it would be nice if there was a, a more level playing field if you knew you know, what kinds of things you should be negotiating and more disclosure and transparency around those agreements might be, might be helpful to all of us. So I think in the end, it's to your point, more transparency is a good thing. It's more a question of how, how we get there.
1: And I would imagine that part of the complexity that you've spoken about is precisely because this is regulation. It's not a voluntary code. It's, it will be the law of the land in Canada and, it w- and enforcement will be compulsory. Um, it's not all businesses are in love with government regulation and legislation. Um, that being the case, why did the Mining Association decide to pursue the path of, or decide to support the path of compulsory legislation and regulation rather than voluntary
2: codes? Well, this can only work if it applies to everyone. Otherwise you the, the whole system caves in it doesn't work it can't just be voluntary um, so I mean I don't think I think that that's a it's kind of a bit it's a bit of a stereotype that industry will always oppose regulation I don't think that's true uh, industry will support regulation when they when when it's going to achieve an appropriate objective um, you know similarly just you know a few years ago we were asking Environment Canada to, in, uh, to take steps to include the diamond sector under the metal mining effluent regulations because they weren't included. So, I mean, there are times when, and again, what are the reasons there? So that there's a level playing field so everybody at least knows what the, 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 the entry rules of the game are. So regulation has its purpose, has its role, and uh, you know, people, when industry gets concerned, of course, or anybody else for that matter, it's because it's, it's administratively heavy, it's too burdensome, uh, and, it, and sort of the, the administrative weight of something actually gets in the way of the objectives it's trying to achieve. Uh, but regulation in and of itself, I don't think is, is a bad thing. It has its place. Okay. Um, Do you want to agree with me there? or no? <laughs>
3: These are more your reasons than, than ours. Yeah, I mean, I've ahead listened ahead. to it a lot. <laughs> I've listened to the reasons. Um,
1: in your experience of, of listening to the reasons, do you feel that the industry has been enthusiastic about this process, or have they been reluctant participants?
3: No. I think um, in this process, uh, when we, well, actually, if we go back to the beginning of when we first started the engagement with the mining sector, uh, there was already, you know, there's already a lot of voluntary disclosure so voluntary disclosure was not really on the table as something that we would work together on because there are you know there's the Global Reporting Initiative, there's the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, uh, companies just voluntarily will disclose a certain level of uh, taxes paid or I think you know when we first started the discussions we were really interested in you know was there room to talk about a mandatory regime and what we heard at least was that you know there was already a lot of progressive Canadian companies voluntarily disclosing, so a mandatory regime might do what Pierre said is level the playing field, you know, create a create a standard and align with other jurisdictions. Um, so at the heart of our our initial memorandum of understanding, which we all signed in 2012, was an agreement that we would focus on um, a mandatory standard. How that was implemented was part of the process. Um, So we didn't necessarily come out saying it would be federal legislation. Uh, No, that's true. No, but uh, the mandatory,
1: yeah,
3: (laughs) the mandatory nature of what we were going to ask for together was there in the initial agreement.
1: There have been some industry holdouts. The Canadian Petroleum uh, Producers Association declined to join the coalition that drew up the recommendations that led to this legislation. Why do you think that was the case?
2: You're going to handle that one. <laughs>
3: well, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Um, Actually, I no. think I think you know our our assumption is: Do you want to? Is that there are kind of two, maybe two reasons. One is they were fighting regulations, mandatory legislation elsewhere. So they were involved in a a fight um, in the United States with the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. I think that led to a kind of a. A withdrawal of interest um, on the issue, so I think that's that 's definitely one issue that played a role um, but the second is i don 't know part of me wonders if the oil and gas sector if they, like as, a, as an association, if they engage with civil society in the same way, um, we find them very hard to approach and dialogue with, so i don 't know if they have the same level of engagement and I think they're there could actually be sectoral differences that influence um, the willingness to engage at a deeper level with a, soci- with a civil society organization. Um, and that's something that we've seen throughout this process. Uh, so so that, that's the other thing that I've kind of observed.
2: Right, a Couple of points on this. I mean, one I, c- I can say that, I mean, CAP is, is kind of like how where we were a few years ago, where they, their mandate is domestic they don't really feel that they have a role to play on, on issues that have an international dimension. And we were the same way. It was the whole debate over C300, John McKay's bill of mm-hmm. a few years back that sort of led our members to say, if it's not MAC, we gotta create a MAC that would handle these types of issues. And so now we do have that you know, the, an a, a very active committee that's been leading the charge on these types of issues. And we are now engaging in this space. So that didn't used to be the case, but it still is, I think, with CAP. So I think part of it was, you know, it, there true. wasn't a, a home for this issue at, at their association. Um, the, but to touch on your point, and, and I'm, I'm going to, you know, boast here a little, either it's going to come across that way, but I mean, <laughs> we started in the early 1990s with the Whitehorse Mining Initiative, which is unparalleled to this day in Canada. It was a two-year multi-stakeholder process that involved uh, civil society, Aboriginal Canadians, organized labor governments and ourselves, and it led after a two-year process to an agreement on a broad set of themes. Um, and that was the beginning of, I think, a process where we learned as an industry to uh, look outside the mine gate and look at opportunities for working with other Canadians in a way that we hadn't historically done. And now I would say, you know, twenty some years later, um, we're pretty good at it and pretty relaxed about it. Um, so. And we now are at a point where, you know, at our board table, if there are issues that we're dealing with, the questions won't be just, "What do other industries think, and can we work with them?" It will be. What do other groups think? Have we talked to any of the NGOs about this? Is there an opportunity for finding common ground? It's, it's kind of now how we're wired to think, and we see ways of moving our own agenda forward by trying to build alliances with what used to be called sort of un, non-conventional partners, whereas now it's becoming a little more, little more conventional.
1: So based on that experience for both of your organizations of bringing together NGOs and corporations who have not always worked together um, well. Often they, they have, they have uh, historically I think you're right, they've often talked at one another rather than mm-hmm. with one another. What, it, from this cooperation, what do you think worked well? What do you think w- worked poorly? And how would you adv- advise other industries, especially other extractive industries, that are looking at joining hands across civil society and industry?
2: Well, I, I think what made this a little bit easier than some is that there, th- there was an agreement very early on on the objective. And then the the discussions were on, you know, how do we, you know, on the details. And the arguments, to the extent there were arguments, were on the details. How how do we, you know, how are we going to define which payments are covered and all the rest of the the stuff that went into the recommendations. That just had to be worked through. But there was already an agreement on where we wanted to get to. And that, I think, makes uh, collaboration much easier from the start. Where the end point is unclear, then it can be a process that, can really spin in circles and people can get frustrated and, and lose interest. So I think that was certainly one of the advantages we had in this particular case.
3: I think the, yeah, the initial document, which was a signed fairly official document, uh, did really help to mm-hmm. identify the scope of the collaboration very, very clearly. And it provided initial language for what was to be included in the scope. Um, and, and also, in that, a sense of what was not to be included in the scope to some degree, right? It, sort of, it was a, a collaboration with kind of a narrow field, you could say. Um, but I would say there are kind of two other things that helped to make you know, this successful, but also helped us resolve the problems when they emerged. And One is time. We spent a lot of time together, which could also be said to be trust. Because I think trust and time are inherently interlinked. When you spend a lot of time with someone else, you build a sense of personal trust with them. And we spend, yeah, or or maybe distrust, (laughs) but in this case, trust. Um, But so we we build sort of more personal relationships and trust around those. Um, And in that, you ended up with a kind of mutual understanding where we could explain the other's positions to our own members. Sometimes without asking them <laughs> very clearly. So you understood how to articulate how the the other side kind of not the other side but was, was feeling about something or approaching something or their technical issues with a particular challenge you were facing. So, you know, whether it was like the definition of control, we spent a while on that, but trying to understand, you know, understanding the the concerns from civil society, the technical issues that industry faced, and then being able to kind of articulate those more broadly to each of our groups. I think that played a big role in both supporting one another, um, but also just creating that base understanding of, of what we were talking about.
2: I, yeah, I think her first point, too, the, so the rules of engagement, the terms of reference, I guess, the, the first mem- document
3: Memorandum of Understanding. Memorandum of Understanding.
2: Yeah. I, uh, once it was negotiated and concluded i don't know if we ever went back to it because by the time we reached that point we knew how to work to we'd already more or less learned how to work together so it was always there as a reference but it was not something well like i don't think you had to well wait a second hang on guys you have just look at this line 5.2 you're in violation of that um so that initial work on sort of framing how we're gonna, you're going to work together, I think, is an important first step. And then after that, if you do that well at the beginning, then after that it, it can be a lot easier.
3: But it, it did do, it wasn't used very much as a reference, but it, it did in the very initial conversations. I remember holding industry consultations in Vancouver, and there were some industry yeah. folks that, that, why isn't this just voluntary? And then it was very easy to say, oh, this is about a memorandum of understanding that we've signed. It's about a, we're, we're looking at mandatory here, so we have to kind of start from that point. And that helped to define the conversation that everyone was having. So I think, so it wasn't necessarily employed as a tool, but it was, it was sort of like a base standard that right. said, no, the conversation is starting here.
1: Mm-hmm. I guess finally the question I'd have is, uh, while this legislation is making its way through Canada's parliament, um, there have been similar kinds of legislation in other G7 countries, the uh, Dodd-Frank uh, Act in the United States, the EU Directive on Accounting and, um, and, and Transparency. How do you think Canada compares, not just in terms of this legislation, but Canada's political enthusiasm for um, for transparency and disclosure in the extractive industries? Are we leading? Are we with the pack? Are we behind?
2: There was a... it was interesting... Um, so part of the, the history of our work um, when in the lead-up to the G8 meeting where the Prime Minister made his an announcement that he would be, that Canada would be developing s- some mechanism for mandatory reporting. At that point, we didn't know if it was going to be federal legislation or not. But in the lead-up to that, uh, we were dealing with sort of panicked calls from officials preparing for the G8, knowing that transparency was one of the top three items on the agenda and Canada had nothing to say but they'd heard about our work. So they wanted to validate if, if this was real. Um, and they had trouble believing certainly on our side oh, that yeah. it was real, that we were in <laughs> fact serious and about moving forward with such a mandatory scheme. And uh, so they held a bunch of their own consultations across the country with the mining and oil and gas sectors, uh, going sort of beyond you know, our own memberships, PDACs and MACs, to, to, to confirm is what we were saying is true. And what was interesting in that, it was a very, I forget which city it was, but NRCan heard loud and clear from people that pe- neither the PDAC nor ourselves knew, but who were in the mining world, you're like, Canada is late. You, we should be leading this because of our size, as you touched on earlier. And you're nowhere to be seen. Like This is not about leading. This is about catching up and you're overdue. And so NRCan was sort of taken aback by that. Um, but that of course provided, you know, the, the impetus for, for the prime minister to ultimately make the commitment. Now I think fast forward today in the States, it's been, there's been a few yeah. <laughs> stumbles, setbacks. <laughs> setbacks. I think we are now back in a leadership position. I think the, certainly our industry, the Canadian industry has distinguished mm-hmm. itself on the global stage. Um, for for the work that we've done. Um, it's I don't think I'll ever see again a page on Oxfam US praising the Canadian mining industry. It was a wonderful moment. Um, I hope you framed it. <laughs> so, um, so I do think we're, we are now, we have gone from behind to up front, and I think it's a good place to be.
3: Yeah, you know, I think Canada is going to be out there with the leaders, you know? Uh, on this issue, particularly if you consider our implementation timeline. We will be, uh, you know, depending on when the Act actually comes into force, uh, assuming it's by the deadline of uh, June first, twenty 2015, you know, we'll be one of the countries leading on having reports available to the public. So in that regard, I think, uh, you know, Canada's definitely going to be leading. We have, of course, some concerns with the legislation, which itself um, has a few issues missing in terms of the global standard, uh, particularly regarding uh, just the clarification that the payments will be available at a certain level of disaggregation, which citizens need in order to actually ask those tough, tough questions. If it's too high level, they can't ask the questions they need, specifically, specifically at like, the municipal or provincial or regional government levels. Um, but this is something that can be addressed uh, through the administrative process. Um, that's being developed within ENERCAN, and I think you know the government has indicated a clear intention to address it and a public intention to, you know, to align with the global standards and to continue with the leadership. Um, we just want to. One of our concerns is that the process by which it will be addressed won't indeed be multi-stakeholder. So you know, one of I think the reasons we've been successful is that. It's kind of been a civil society industry collaboration that pushed this forward. And so we do have concerns that that it will be taken, you know, that the next steps will exclude civil society. And I think that globally we know that having the people that actually use the data at the table talking about what is important for them is an important part of the discussion.
2: And you- I should, before you, you close, too, just for the public record also say that we too have some concerns with the federal legislation. Not necessarily Parti- the same concerns. Not concern. necessarily, <laughs> <laughs> though we, you know, we're still all on the same page on this, so we would agree with those comments as well. But there, one, of the, one of our biggest objectives in all of this was this notion of equivalency. So if, you have, if you're listed on the New York Stock Exchange and you're, you're a Canadian company as well, or if you're in the UK, yes. that it's one report it's in our interest, we don't want to have to produce multiple reports um, because, the, because the, you know, the requirements vary slightly. We want a system that allows you to recognize one report fits all. It's also in the interest of civil society to, yes. to not have to try to, to compare different data. So you want consistent data. And the federal legislation currently doesn't provide the kind of assurance we were looking for that equivalency will be as fundamental as we think it should be. And I'd close just with this one comment too, is it was always our preference that it be done, that this be actually done through securities as it is in other jurisdictions. And if I have one big disappointment, it's with our provincial governments who haven't acted yet. Uh, Ontario in particular uh, is such a dominant player in, in, in Mm -hmm. the mining world. Um, They've said sort of all of the nice things in private meetings, but they've never actually come out and said, we will build this um, through, uh, through regulation. And certainly I think remains our industry's preference that at some point, and this is why equivalency is important, at some point, Ontario, BC, and Quebec primarily for our sector will actually move forward with this. And then we actually won't really need uh, the federal legislation, at least insofar as it relates to mining, because we're mostly publicly traded companies. So mm-hmm. I, I think the provinces, it's, and again I, I guess they're not, for the most part, used to looking beyond their, their borders all that much, so perhaps they're just not grasping the significance of this issue, but they should.
1: Okay. Well you, you've each concluded with a, a comment about what you would like to see done differently in the future, <laughs> or might have liked to have seen done differently now. Um, I'll. I'll add my own, um, especially for someone who works with with parliamentarians, it is at a minimum an unsubtle irony, perhaps a comical irony, that a bill on transparency is being passed by being buried in a colossal omnibus bill. (laughs) (laughs) But that, I suspect, is a discussion for another day. (laughs) Um, Very true. We'll open it up. Are there any questions for for our panelists? Yes, go ahead.
0: I actually promised someone I would ask a question. They really wanted to be here, so this is a proxy question. And it, they actually, the person said that this is probably an issue that they would not address, so you're going to have to force it. And it's not, it's not meant to be facetious in any way. It might sound like it is, but... That's an excellent introduction, I love that. The question relates to, to the gender. Suspense is to gender. And, and if, if uh, we were in a, a hierarchy, because obviously we know corruption tends to occur where there's pockets of power, either to access that power or manipulate it somehow. So if, if more women were in positions of power, is there any empirical evidence gathered to date to suggest that there would be any less corruption and any more transparency if we were in a world of business and government entirely run by women? It's
1: a, it's a, may I take that one? Yes, it's please. A, it's, <laughs> that's a, a very interesting question because it's one that um, Gopak has, has researched quite a bit and has written about. Um, because we do think, in addition to the uh, the aspect of corruption, it delegitimizes governments and parliaments when they are not representative of the populations they seek to represent. It makes them less legitimate in the eyes of the population. It certainly makes them less effective and less capable of having a truly national discourse leading to advancing the national good. But the question about whether gender makes a difference in, um, in corruption is, is a fascinating one. Our findings have been um, that greater, that on the whole, um, female parliamentarians in systems where um, there's a low risk of getting caught, female parliamentarians are just as likely as male parliamentarians to cheat, steal and take bribes. However, in systems where there is a moderate to high probability of getting caught, female parliamentarians are much less likely to steal, (laughs) cheat or take bribes. Now you can read that many ways. Um, there's some people who think perhaps it's because that means that female parliamentarians tend to be more risk averse. Yeah. Perhaps it means that in systems that are less corrupt, um, they tend to elect women, more m- women based on merit rather, rather than based on corruption itself. That is a highly corrupt system just reproduces more corrupt people. Um, so I can only tell you that correlation strongly exists. Hmm. I can't give you a, a definitive causal answer to it. Um, there is only one parliament today that has an outright majority of female parliamentarians and that is Rwanda. And Rwanda is a fairly extraordinary place so I would be reluctant to take any, any general conclusions based on what has happened in a country that has recently gone through a genocide. Other questions? Yeah. Uh I'm uh, Professor Trevor Preston. Um, I'm a professor of international development at Centennial College, and I just have one question that maybe uh, each of the speakers or maybe one speaker could address. Could you tell me more about the philosophy of disclosure and transparency? Is it simply an effort to put information out there and people will, do, will take ownership of that information, publicize that information? Or is it a... serve as a bit of a deterrence that... That will, that getting that information out there either will get will stop the payments or people will stop asking for it so maybe the in terms of summing up, could you tell me about the philosophy of transparency or didn't disclosure?
2: Okay, thank you. Sure.
3: Um, I think you know at the heart of this is the belief that the data will be actively used, um, and we have seen this information be used. Um, You know, I was at uh, a series of workshops with civil society organizations in Trinidad and Tobago who were using their first EITI report, which is the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. Um, And they had their first report. And like a lot of EITI processes, it was four-year-old data. Uh, So the government that was there had changed. (laughs) Um, But they were trying to understand it. And it was at slightly too high a level. So it didn't have all the kind of information they maybe needed. Um, but they were actively engaging with the report and trying to see, you know, how can they use that information to understand why certain communities, you know, weren't experiencing the benefits that they, they needed uh, or wanted to see from the resource wealth. Uh, and I think that we expect this active engagement, but partly because our members are on the ground asking for it. So in that way, I think, you know, as, an, as a coalition, we're kind of lucky because we have All these civil society organizations globally, they're saying, we need this in this form so that we can ask the questions. Now, data doesn't automatically become transparency or even accountability. Right? People have to actually access the data. And then it has to be translated often into something digestible. Because in poor countries, even in Canada, a lot of people aren't data literate, you know? Can somebody access a, an XBRL file and, and figure out what all that means in terms of real time? But there are a lot of groups out there, and there are a lot of researchers and a lot of academics um, who I think will engage with this information, make it you know, more accessible, maybe turn it into images. We've done these kind of things in our coalitions in certain countries. Uh, broadcast it on the radio. They've done that in some of, our, some of the countries The where we have coalitions. There's lots of different ways to convey information. Put it on a billboard. Um, so, but there will have to be people using the information for it to have an impact. Um, however, we know that there will be.
1: Um, your example of Trinidad is an interesting one. I spoke with some of our colleagues, some of my colleagues in Trinidad, in the Trinidad uh, Senate, who said that before they used to get rolled blind, Now they're getting robbed, thanks to transparency, they're getting robbed in broad daylight. And and I'm not sure if that's an improvement or not. I don't know either. But certainly, um, if you have the information, you may not be able to enforce accountability. But if you don't have the information, you have no chance of enforcing accountability.
3: That's true.
1: Yes.
4: Perhaps um, as a follow-up to that, you could just talk about investors and what the role
3: that they played in all this, and also just a word about the workshops that you carried out and how many people were involved and the purpose of those workshops. So it's not just MAC or PDAC or uh, Publish What You Pay Canada, but a lot more Canadians were involved in this whole process. So this is an issue that's had quite a lot of investor support. Um, Canadian investors have come together to, written, to write letters in favor of mandatory transparency, um, and as have international investors, uh, have you know, supported uh, the introduction of mandatory reporting standards in Canada, um, and have you know, investors with $5.8 trillion in assets wrote to Natural Resources Canada and called for them to introduce a strong mandatory reporting rule. Um, But I think this information does have utility for investors, and this is where our recommendations did did use the securities venue, partly because of the investor interest in the data. Now that doesn't mean that through federal regulations or federal legislation that investors won't access and use that data. I'm sure they will in the same way. They would through through securities regulation, Um, but part of the push for securities has come because of the investor interest in the data. I don't know if you wanna talk further about the workshops, but...
2: Well, it was, it was mostly done by Ben. I should have a shout out for my colleague, Ben Chalmers, <laughs> who is presently in, on another continent talking about a, another transparency initiative of ours called Towards Sustainable Mining, but, um, but he did all of, all of the heavy lifting and hosted all of these workshops with you. But I think it, we reached certainly beyond the membership. We held some, some key ones in different major cities in Canada and tried to bring in civil society and industry tried to build as much awareness of what we were trying to do as we could
3: yeah we, we, had, we had quite a number of work of sort of workshops on different topics often they were kind of looking at substantive issues that we were coming up against so getting a broader perspective on some of the trickier you know issues we were facing um, and sometimes it was more it was always partly more awareness raising um, but there was a lot of a lot of different companies attended, and then we also held civil society-focused workshops mm. where we reached out to the uh, civil society mm. community.
1: And I think that's all the time that we oh, have. one more, one more. Oh, one more. No, you, you squeezed in. Hi, uh, Alana with uh, Barrett Gold Corporation. I want to thank you guys for your comments. It's just a quick one. It's mostly uh, for Claire. One of the things I'm most proud of the work that the industry did on this is that we were constructive and proactive and that we sort of got out and worked on problem solving ahead of time. So once we publish what we pay, (laughs) what's Mm -hmm. next for you guys? What's next for all of us? That's an excellent final question. Yeah.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, we've got lots of ideas. I don't think my coalition has come together to finalize what idea it will be. But there's a lot of you know, interesting work going on globally. We have a lot of members that are really interested in con- more contract transparency. Um, and there's a lot of important issues now put into contracts. Uh, and we, uh, we have a lot of coalition members interested in that. We just finished a big uh, security search where we pulled up and basically 400 oil and gas contracts um, that were publicly available previously, but kind of unknown. Um, so, And about 35 of those from, uh, from CEDAR. So that's an issue that I think is definitely really big within our coalition. Our members are, are interested in that and in, and in contract monitoring. And then there are lots of other kind of transparency issues around, you know, there's been a lot of ta- talk at the international level around issues related to tax and illegal tax evasion and things like uh, the public disclosure of beneficial ownership. So the, you know, who really owns a company? There's been you know, a lot of these issues emerging. And I think as a coalition, we're gonna to have to look at what's gonna be, you know, be our priority issue in the coming years.
1: So I suppose, assuming the bill is passed in the upcoming session, in the upcoming deliberations, the two of you will have to start working on a new memorandum of understanding. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank Although I don't, think
3: the, I don't think our work is done yet. No, but. we're
1: not done yet. <laughs>
0: I, I didn't mean to cut off questions. I think you had a question as well. Would you like to oh, ask? What's yeah. That?
2: Yep. They just oh, do. I just oh.
0: I can do that. Uh, my name is Hellebank Jorgensen. I am the head of the Global Compact Network Canada. And I was wondering, and thank you very much for all, all your great insight here, in terms of the assurance of this and in terms of the hotline where if there is something out in the country where we say, oh, there's something that perhaps not been pub- published, uh, what has been paid. Um, any, any thoughts on that, the whole assurance process of this?
3: We had not really thought about a hotline. Um, it would probably have to be something via text, because often calling is too expensive in developing countries. But there's all kinds of very cool online things you can do with texting now. We've definitely been brainstorming how to get information out there. For example, using text services and different kind of... You know, web platforms that allow you to access rural communities or that are only really available kind of through text. So I don't know if there'll be a hotline per se, but I think there will be some really. We're going to see some neat, innovative tools using um, more sort of locally available community resources like like text services where that's available to communicate information and even you know do back and forth, where you can ask questions. Okay.
0: No further questions? Oh, one more, okay. <laughs> Last one this time. Sure, thank you. Um, so, Hallie, she did a great job teeing it up for me. I'm from PwC Canada, so on the topic of assurance. I, I think that, <laughs> that notion here, which is really important, which you talked about, is that, that this information needs to be um, relevant. It needs to be accurate, but, it, and, and, but of course it has to be reliable. So, uh, you know, how is it that, and, you know, of course, through PwC, we're in the business of providing trust. So, uh, you know, how is it that Transparency International and Publish What You Pay and and MAC, what is it that you're doing to ensure that the information that is provided is information people can can trust, and and from a legislative perspective, what's happening there?
3: I mean, the legislation has a strong safeguard, so... There's a there's an attestation clause in the legislation whereby, um, you know, directors or officers of the company have to essentially attest to the information, um, and there's also director liability in the legislation. So those two things together create a fairly strong bar for assurance. Um,
2: you know, this is actually an area yeah. where we also have a bit of a an issue um, because the way it's drafted, it it it. it it reads as though one's due diligence would have to account for every last cent. So, the work of PWC, you, you don't assure to that level. So, there's, there's actually a bit of an issue here that needs to be worked through. And that's, this would, had this been through securities legislation, this notion of materiality would be, is already built in, it would be fine. This is federal legislation using the criminal law power. And they have, they haven't embedded in this this notion of materiality. So it's actually a bit of a, a bit of a problem that we're hoping can maybe be resolved through 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 the guidance that's going to be developed uh, on a go forward basis. Uh, so there's, so Claire's point is right. I mean, there's there's strong levels of assurance here, but but practically speaking, uh, there's still some questions in order to because you, you're not going to account for every last cent nobody in your firm or in your world would 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 provide that level of assurance what's important is that it that we have that that we're able to demonstrate that that there is the kinds of assurance that would be expected for something of this nature
1: from a legislative perspective i'd say that it raises the uh, people often in in my experience confuse parliamentary sovereignty and parliamentary supremacy With parliamentary omnipotence. Um, One of the countries that has very, very strong anti-corruption laws is Ukraine. It also has a catastrophic level of political corruption across its entire political class because that legislation is simply not enforced and the enforcement agencies have neither the power nor the resources to attend to them. A key measure of this legislation, as all anti-corruption legislation, will be once it's passed is the government willing and able to to devote the resources necessary to it so that it can
2: be enforced. Though though I think it's important to point out here that that in in this particular instance, there's, I mean, besides the the burden of collecting that information and then submitting it, which once you've set up your systems is kind of a one-time burden. Once it's set up, it's not easy, it's not hard thereafter to provide that information, there isn't really a strong disincentive for industry to not do it. So, I mean, there may be the, the possibility of an error and in, in, in something that can be corrected. But I don't think, I mean, industry in this particular, with this particular legislation is not the culprit. The culprit is government that is, and, and what's happening to the monies that are submitted. And industry is trying to play a role in helping shine a light on what those monies are that are received by governments. So we're, 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 um, we're the enabler of being able to do that. I mean there's the Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act which is sort of a parallel piece of legislation where you're actually talking about bribes, bribery, but in this case these are legitimate payments that companies make and we want to disclose that. So I don't think there'll be that much of an issue um, with, with companies about not disclosing, they want to disclose, at least in the mining sector, we want to disclose. There might be some, we've got 1,200-plus companies in Canada, there might be some, wouldn't surprise me, there are some out there that don't know yet that they, <laughs> they will very soon have this requirement. And so it'll be a bit of a wake-up call for them, but certainly in our respective memberships, PDAC and MAC, there's a high level of awareness and they know that this is coming.
0: Thank you. Uh, Please welcome Ms. Yolanda Banks to thank our speakers today.
4: Good afternoon everyone, my name is Yolanda Banks. I'm senior advisor, corporate social responsibility at Export Development Canada. So I've been uh, given the very honorable role of thanking everyone today, but particularly as the sponsor of the event, je dois donner remerciement d'être invité d'être commanditeur. So I have to also compliment the Empire Club for bringing this topic Uh, as part of its roster of lunches. This isn't something that they typically offer or talk about, but it is a a conversation that's been preoccupying business for several years now. And I also have to um, compliment the Empire Club as well as the Global Organization of Parliamentarians Against Corruption for the format. I think typical Empire Club luncheons are, you have a speaker, a little Q&A, and it's done. But to have a panel that actually has a dialogue, a free-flowing dialogue about a topic is a very refreshing way to treat this. As well, we see together two uh, groups, representatives from two groups that one could almost consider adversaries, the uh, civil society and the mining industry or private sector. So again, very uh, innovative in cutting edge to put this together in this way. If this is a topic, uh, corruption and transparency in business is a topic that very much concerns Export Development Canada because it can impede free and fair trade. When you have one entity or business that's willing to engage to, in corruption or bribery to gain an advantage they wouldn't ha- otherwise have does not lead to free trade or fair trade. It does not lead to the best product for the best price and what it does is change benefits into the pockets of the few, rather than to the many. I think what we heard from the speakers today is that transparency, through perhaps legislation, is part of the solution to this. It will achieve, we hope, a more level playing field. And we know that, based on what we heard, legislation is coming, so those who will be affected will begin preparing. And Canada has very much responded to voices that they've heard, the Government of Canada, that they've heard from industry and from civil society in bringing this information in this legislation forward. I think another final point that both speakers pointed to is that the success of this initiative has been through building trust between two groups that are typically considered adversaries, civil society and the private sector, but with the cooperation of government as well. So once again, congratulations to the organizers, to the speakers, and thank you to those of you who came out this afternoon. I know everyone has a very busy day, but it's an important topic, and we thank you for your time. Thank you.
0: And while we're at it, I'd like to uh, thank our generous event sponsor, Export Development Corporation. Thank you very much for enabling today's luncheon. I'd also like to thank the National Post as our print media sponsor. This meeting has been broadcast on Rogers TV. Uh, You in the audience can follow us on Twitter at empire underscore club and visit us online at www.empireclub.org. Thank you all for coming. We hope to see you again soon at some of the exciting events that are coming up and described on the brochures at your table. Please have a look before you go. This meeting is now adjourned. Thank you for joining us.